I'm Michael Schulder. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, at a moment when so many prominent men in high-profile fields are falling because of women who are breaking their silence. I wonder and worry how much of a difference it will make for women who are not Ashley Judd, who are not Angelina Jolie, who labor in obscurity at minimum wage jobs and can be fired at the drop of a hat because they're at-will employees. And I don't know that it's going to make those companies any more receptive to the stories these women have to tell, which are often quite horrendous. Joining me is one of the pioneers in sexual harassment research, Professor Louise Fitzgerald. I'm actually working on a case now against a factory where when new women employees come out onto the floor, the men chant, fresh meat, fresh meat. One of Fitzgerald's early assignments was to consult with Anita Hill's legal team before Hill testified against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. I don't know if you remember back to that time, but people didn't believe that these sorts of things happened, and particularly unless it was some poor, undereducated, blue-collar worker, which is completely unfair to poor, undereducated, blue-collar workers, but educated men, men we knew, doctors, lawyers, judges, they don't do those sort of things. And finally, Louise Fitzgerald's memorable journey to success. I was a college dropout. I had flunked out of school with a 1.2 average GPA. How she dug herself out of that hole to become a leader in her academic field is an inspiring story she'll share near the end of our conversation. This Wavemaker Conversation is the first in a series of episodes featuring leaders in the field of sexual harassment and other related offenses who will share original insights and stories that breaking news coverage overlooks. And now, my conversation with Louise Fitzgerald. It feels like we've entered a new era in the 21st century, just in recent weeks, on the sexual harassment, the predatory front, In any event, just moments ago, right before we started speaking, Senator Al Franken was on the Senate floor and announced that he would be resigning because of the multiple women who have come forward and accused him of inappropriate touching and groping. When this podcast episode posts, that's going to feel like old news. Every day, it seems like some other prominent person is falling because of his behavior towards women. What's your reaction, first of all, to the Al Franken story? Well, it's mixed, of course. Senator Franken was a champion for women's rights. On the other hand, his personal behavior was such that it completely undercuts that credibility. It would also undercut any ability to criticize other prominent people who have been accused if he didn't resign. When did you get into this field of of really documenting abuses of women? I got my first grant to study sexual harassment in, I think it was 1983. And it was about that same time that the first book on sexual harassment in higher ed came out. And it was a case study sort of book. There were several personal stories, but there wasn't any real research. And I was intrigued by that. My field of focus has been a combination of violence against women on the one hand, and on the other hand, women in the workplace and barriers to women in the workplace. 
So this topic essentially combines those in a seamless way. And I started studying it in 1983. I do clinical work as well. And so stories of violence and sexual violence and victimization were certainly nothing new to me. Well, let me ask you, because I know one of the things you're known for in your field of study is something that's addressed by the following couple of quotes that I've seen. There's a columnist uh, who writes for the New York Times named Barry Weiss talking about the wide variety of cases that have come to light recently from just horrific to merely bad. She says, are others disturbed by the moral flattening going on here? Al Franken should not be mentioned in the same breath as Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey. I agree with that. Now, let me give you another quote that I just saw from Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. She says, I think when we start having to talk about the differences between sexual assault and sexual harassment and unwanted groping, you're having the wrong conversation. You need to draw a line in the sand and say none of it is okay, none of it is acceptable. I agree with that too. So they don't contradict each other to you. I think it's important. I mean, Senator Gillibrand is right. It's the wrong conversation to be had, or at least it's wrong that it's the only conversation that is had. At the same time, it is still true that, as far as we know, what Al Franken did, it simply pales in comparison to the other things that we've heard about. People have have been struggling to say, okay, some of these offenses are worse than others, And my understanding is you've come up with at least a way to categorize the various offenses that we might be hearing. Is that right? Yes. We developed a way to actually assess what goes on in a workplace. And after we had done a lot of that, we were able to describe different types of behavior. Now, let me say that type of behavior is not necessarily the same as severity. There are lots of things that go into severity besides what somebody does. Obviously, sexual assault is pretty much one of the most serious things that can be done. But lower level, less obvious, less grotesque, less heinous sorts of behavior can be very, very damaging if they're repeated, if you're unable to get away from them, if you are for some reason particularly vulnerable. I'm actually working on a case now against a factory where when new women employees come out onto the floor, the men chant, fresh meat, fresh meat. And and I mean publicly, out loud. That's not sexual assault, but it also is, I think, pretty serious. It's sort of shocking to me because this is the year 2017 and there are chants of fresh meat as new female employees come onto the shop floor. Yes, and in the presence of supervisors. It's sort of like when Mr. Trump said, oh, it's just locker room talk. That's the kind of explanation that is given for that. The most widespread type of sexual harassment is of the fresh meat variety, okay? Words that are sexually hostile and derogatory towards women, usually by derogating their sexuality. We call that gender hostility or sexual hostility. And it is in every study that has ever been done over the last 30 years, by far the most common. 
Now, my factory workers are a fairly extreme example, but it's not uncommon, the kinds of things that men say to women, say about women publicly, and it expresses a hostility to women that's often sexually flavored. And in most cases, it doesn't have anything to do with getting a date, obviously. It has to do with conveying to women that they do not belong in this particular workplace. They're reduced to their genitalia. They're reduced to their femaleness. They're reduced to their sexuality. They're not workers. They're not professional, so forth and so on. So that's one cut. So the gender hostility, I'm going to keep that locked in my brain now. That's a perspective-changing term. So gender hostility, shouting fresh meat, presumably it has been going on for a long time, and presumably for a long time, you correct me if I'm wrong, the women employees did not speak up, and then somebody had to be the first. What happened in this particular case? Well, in this particular case, the gender hostility example I gave was only one of many, 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 many types of things. This is a pretty extreme case that was going on. There was, and this sort of gets to a point that I also didn't want to forget, which is there are different kinds of harassment. In an organization, they tend to happen together. They had all the gender hostility, but at the same time, they also had unwanted sexual attention all the way up through sexual assault. And they also had sexual coercion, which is that sleep with me or I'll fire you variety. And these all get mixed up together, often in the same experience, the same woman, and often in the behavior of the same man. It's sort of counterintuitive. We had the gender hostility. What are the other two categories? Unwanted sexual attention and sexual coercion. Sexual coercion is unwanted sexual attention with a threat or a bribe attached to it sort of Harvey Weinstein's behavior. Let's talk about your career. Just as we're speaking, the Time Magazine Person of the Year cover story, The Silence Breakers. So in your experience studying these cases over the years, tell me about the silence breakers that you've experienced and what it takes to break the silence. Oh, well, obviously it takes courage or desperation, or both. It's interesting, I thought, the name that Time came up with, because one of the first papers I ever gave on this topic was called Breaking Silence. And because it was something that we all knew about, that most of us had experienced in one form or another, but but we never said anything about it. I think I mentioned my own experience to you, that I had a classic example of sexual harassment happen to me when I was a young woman of the unwanted sexual attention, sort of sexual coercion variety. I was in my early 20s. I was working as a secretary. The head of the organization asked me to stay after work and do some additional work for him for which I was going to be paid. And I walked into his office after hours, kind of like a lamb to the slaughter. And there was this sofa. There was a refrigerator. There was a pitcher of martinis, truly. And he proceeded to try to seduce me and tell me he wanted me to be his mistress. Now, I did what 
people in the late 60s and early 70s almost always did, I kind of tried to wiggle out of it without making him angry. We now call that, it has a technical name, because I also study how women handle sexual harassment. And the name for that particular strategy is appeasement. You try to put the guy off without making him angry so that he won't hurt you, either professionally or physically or socially. So I I said things like, oh, you're married, or oh, I'm married. I didn't say what I was thinking, which was, I'm 24 years old. You're in your late 60s. I wouldn't want to sleep with you if you were the last man on earth. Who do you think you are? But I, of course, didn't say that. And I didn't tell anybody. Who was I going to tell? He was the head of the organization. Well, you know, it's interesting you said, who was I going to tell? Even Ashley Judd, who has become prominent in this this overarching story, who had one of those early experiences with Harvey Weinstein and tried to warn everybody afterwards. She didn't remain silent. Her quote was, who were we supposed to tell specifically? The quote was, were we supposed to call some fantasy attorney general of moviedom? She adds, there wasn't a place for us to report these experiences. And so as I think of your personal experience, as I think of the case you're working on now on the factory floor, this isn't happening quietly. These are men chanting in the public workspace. If that's what these women see, who are they going to tell? Exactly. In many cases, you ask about the silence. Part of the reason for the silence is exactly that, that you don't have anybody to tell. But I'm not sure it's the main reason if we look at the problem as a whole. The main reason, as far as we can determine, is fear. Fear of not being believed, fear of being humiliated, fear of being punished, fear of being retaliated against, fear of being fired, fear of being isolated. That, I think, is obviously the main reason. But in a whole lot of situations, and particularly early on, there was simply nowhere to go. And in many cases, that is still the case. And speaking of fear, I understand you had a role in in the Anita Hill case. Well, when that happened, there weren't a lot of us who were studying sexual harassment at that point. It hadn't become a really accepted or certainly not a hot topic in the social sciences. And so there weren't a whole lot of us out there who knew anything about it. And when her attorneys were preparing for the Senate hearing, they recognized that they needed some consultation from someone who basically knew how this worked and all of the ins and outs of it, like the myths about sexual harassment most of which we saw play out during the Thomas hearing. The woman was lying. The woman was crazy. The woman was an erotomaniac. She had a fantasy that he was in love with her. I mean, all those things. Because all of those things were going to arise, and they needed someone to help deal with part of that. I was actually originally supposed to testify at the Senate hearings, and then the administration decided that there would be no expert testimony But it's interesting that you, because of your research, were able to anticipate and know the arguments that were going to be used against her. Absolutely. I absolutely knew. And I also knew at that point how widespread this was. 
So I don't know if you remember back to that time, but people didn't believe that these sorts of things happened, and particularly unless it was some poor, undereducated, blue-collar worker, which is completely unfair to poor, undereducated, blue-collar workers, but that was the stereotype people had, was that if this happens at all, it's a truck driver, it's a coal miner, it's a construction worker. That was the stereotype. But educated men, men we knew, doctors, lawyers, judges, they don't do those sort of things. Despite the fact that I think in exactly the same time frame, the president of American University resigned for harassing, I believe it was a young woman who worked in his household. And then there was Senator Bob Packwood, who also had resigned. And all of this happened right there about the same time. And yet people thought it's like these were exceptions. And for whatever reason, despite Anita's testimony, which was incredibly compelling, despite that, this issue did not really take fire then in the same way. She made a big difference, and many of us thought the time had come, but we were wrong. So the time has come now. Uh, maybe. Maybe, Michael. Maybe. Or maybe it's just a brush fire. No, it's not a brush fire, but I think there's the question of how far it will go, how much difference it appears to be making a profound difference with respect to individuals who are in the public eye. I wonder and worry how much of a difference it will make for women who are not Ashley Judd, who are not Angelina Jolie, who labor in obscurity at minimum wage jobs and can be fired at the drop of a hat because they're at-will employees. And I don't know that it's going to make those companies any more receptive to the stories these women have to tell, which are often quite horrendous. And this is clearly a big concern because all of the stories that are being reported widely have to do with men who we either know or who are in prominent positions and who are in industries, generally speaking, where their customers care about this. So now you're raising this whole other class of women or multiple classes of women who, even if they speak up, they might not be able to break the silence. So are there stories that you can tell us of women who have been or continue to, to live under this cloud and really have no place to turn? My best example, Michael, and I have many, but the one that breaks my heart the most has to do with poor, typically African-American, single mothers who live in either public housing or who have Section 8 vouchers for houses and apartments, because many of them, way many, are preyed upon by their landlords and property managers. You need help with the rent? You can't make the rent this month? Let me tell you how you can. Or you're in the shower, and a key opens the door into your apartment, and somebody walks in, and the next thing you know, you're being sexually assaulted on the bathroom floor. They all do it. It's like there's a script. Where did these women go? Where their landlord maybe then reports them to the housing authority and says things like, well, she's using drugs. And so she gets her Section 8 voucher yanked. And here she's got five kids, and she works part-time at Burger King. And she's got a 1974 Oldsmobile that breaks down all the time. And where's she going to go? Who do you go to? 
Who's the attorney general for that? So many of them do go to the local housing authorities, which is an appropriate thing to do. But many of the housing authorities don't do anything about this, or they don't know anything about it. And some will even say, oh, well, you should call the police. So anyway, that's sort of my hobby horse these days, the issue of women in public housing, simply because nobody's paying any attention to it. And these are women that society simply doesn't care about. So that's one. You had shared a story with me about one particular woman that resonated with you, and I wanted you to share that with us. Well, actually, this was, and it makes it sound like a horror story, which it is. This woman was in a homeless shelter along with her two children. And it was in Chicago. It was in the wintertime. And the homeless shelter was run by a minister in the community. He had a Cadillac, and he would come and pick her up, and she would have to go with him. And he would take her to a hotel, and he'd require her to have sex as the price of staying in the homeless shelter. And eventually, she refused to pay that price, and she was literally put out on the streets of Chicago in the winter with her two small children. Now, where was she supposed to go? What year was this, and how did you find out about it? Oh, it was a long time ago, actually. It was my first case having to do with housing. It had to be in the 90s. And again, it wasn't a popular topic, and so there still weren't very many of us doing the work. And so when attorneys would look for people who could be experts, who could say with authority, just because she slept with him doesn't mean she wanted to sleep with him, or that she had any choice about it, or this was anything other essentially than sexual assault via coercion. So they'd find my name on the internet. You had told us about, you know, one strategy to deal with this appeasement. Clearly that was, you know, sometimes the coercion works. Oh, absolutely. People don't do just one thing. Harassment is usually not an event. Many of the things that we've been hearing about lately are events. They are discrete, point-outable. You know, this happened on Wednesday afternoon and he did X and I had to go to his office. Right, but there are multiple events. I mean, none of the people who are sort of infamous now for this kind of behavior have done this kind of thing once. But that's not what I meant. I mean, you're absolutely right. But for the women that we've been hearing about, most of the events happened once. The experiences that have been described with Roy Moore, many women describe these things happening, but most of them say, you know, it happened one time. The same is true with accusations against President Trump. And the same is true of the accusations against Al Franken, who I am mentioning in the same breath, because it makes my point. But if you work for somebody or if you live in someone's property, harassment becomes a process that goes on over time. There was a study a few years ago that the average situation of sexual harassment lasts for six months. So it's an ongoing thing. And that sort of gets back to what I was saying about different kinds of behaviors get mixed up. Harassment is a process, mostly. And we're not seeing that right now. Because the guys that are being called out, it's usually sort of one shot at a time. Not an ongoing thing where you work for the sheriff or his administrative assistant or for the mayor. 
And every day he's talking about your clothes. And every day he's putting his hands on you. And, and at least every week he's wanting you to go out for drinks. And then maybe this is punctuated every now and then by events where he'll grab you or he'll do this or he'll do that. That's a much more common kind of thing. And so women respond in multiple ways to the different aspects. Lots of times we try to ignore it, if that's possible. When that happens, it's usually the verbal stuff. You pretend you didn't hear. You pretend it sailed over your head. There's sort of a denial that goes on. You tell yourself it wasn't important. It was only words. And so you detach from it. And then there's something that I like to call the red dress phenomenon, which is women blame themselves. If I hadn't been wearing that red dress, he wouldn't have done it. If I hadn't gone down to his office after work, it never would have happened. And women do blame themselves. And often the perpetrators encourage that by something that we call DARVO. We've been seeing a lot of this lately. Deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. I mean, think about the accusations against senatorial candidate Roy Moore. First thing that happens, he denied it. In fact, he continues to deny it. Every time something new comes out, he denies it over again, okay? Right. So what happens next? He attacks. And this was very common with the accusations against Donald Trump. They're making it up, okay? Denial. But they want a little fame. They want money. They want their 15 minutes on TV, which quickly segues into I'm the victim here. I've been writing about this lately, so I've been reading all the things that Mr. Moore and Mr. Trump have said in response to their accusers, and both of them basically say, this is a plot, and I'm the victim. Look what's being done to me. This is all about destroying me. This is a witch hunt. This is a lynch mob, as Mr. Moore's campaign spokesman said last night to Anderson Cooper, a lynch mob. So remind us again, DARVO, because that's a term now we should know, stands for what? It's the initials. Deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. The primary expert on DARVO is a woman named Jennifer Freed. And she's a professor at the University of Oregon. And she has done studies of this. And what happens is it often works. Because the research that Jennifer and her colleagues have done shows that, first, it causes victims to blame themselves, which leads them to be silent. But it also damages women's credibility so that people get confused about what is really going on. I mean, it's like, oh, well, Maybe she is just trying to get money. I mean, who knows? I mean, he said so, and so. And this allows the perpetrator to define the situation. Those kinds of attacks on women who report this kind of assault and violence and harassment, it's another insult in addition to the original insult. That's one thing Al Franken did not do, and neither did Louis C.K. They sort of acknowledged what happened, and they said, and I'm really sorry. Now, that doesn't excuse it, but at least it doesn't add, I guess, insult to injury. Because both of those things are important, and men need to be called out on their responsibility for both the act itself and their response to the situation. This DARVO is resonating 
for me and for probably many of us, far beyond the issue of what certain men are doing to certain women, this idea of sowing confusion has really become a strategy in so many spheres of our lives and public policy and elsewhere. So is there any evidence about what might work to defeat a DARVO strategy? Well, I I don't think we've gotten that far yet. But the first step is to call it out, to recognize this when it happens and to call it out over and over and over again. I read a very long article in the Times a few days ago about the campaign, I guess, that Mr. Weinstein undertook against the women who were accusing him. I mean, hiring investigators and actual former intelligence officers to get dirt on people, and so deny, attack. I haven't heard him turn himself into a victim yet, but it can only be coming. Let me ask you, you were one of the early people to really get into this field in a deep way. I imagine you have a lot more colleagues now than you used to. I do, I do. And many of them are my former students, and it's the most rewarding thing in my life. Well, and speaking of your students, the year that you were harassed or the coercion was attempted was what year? I think it was like 69, 68 or 69. I was a secretary, Michael. I was a college dropout. I had flunked out of school with a 1.2 average GPA. So I was a very young woman who was making many of the young women's mistakes. I'd gone to college. I'd gotten caught up in, you know, boys and beer and beach. I went to the University of Florida. That's the institution I had the honor of flunking out of. So I wasn't a professional. I was a very vulnerable 20-something-year-old. A lot of people are going to be fascinated by the 1.2 GPA, which is something I imagine you share with a lot of struggling students. Well, I enjoy telling this story. (laughs) I like to say, which is the case, I failed every single course I took except bait casting, which was what the University of Florida allowed us at the time to take as a phys ed requirement. But I like to tell my students when they say, oh, I can't do it, I'll never pass my qualifying exams, I'll never be able to do my dissertation, I'll never be able to finish college. And I love to tell them that you can, I did. And if I can come back from that and with three children finish college, go to graduate school, get a PhD, become a professor, publish over 100 articles, you can do this. You certainly made up for some lost time there. (laughs) It was a remarkable turning point. What was the turning point? How did you go from a 1.2 GPA dropout at University of Florida to getting married, having three children, working as a secretary, and then what turned you back to academics? Well, I was a very unhappy young housewife, and I was living in Southeast Asia with my husband who was a military officer. It was during the Vietnam War. So I did what you're supposed to do when you're very unhappy, and I went to therapy. And the only therapy available in that place in that time was with the military and their psychiatrists. So I went to see this guy, and uh, the first time I told him my sad story and how depressed I was, and I felt like I was worthless, and he said, okay, 
Come back next week. So I came back next week, and he said, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to see you. And I started to cry. And he said, what are you crying about? And I said, I was hoping that you could give me some help. And he slammed his hand down on the table, and he said, Jesus Christ, lady, don't you know there's a war going on? I've got more important things to do with my time than wasted on a neurotic housewife. I kid you not. Wow. I picked up my purse. I said, thank you very much. I walked out. I got into a bluebird taxi, which were ubiquitous in Bangkok, and I thought, there's got to be a better way to do it than this, and I'm going to do it. And with that, I went, and I registered for the University of Maryland's Overseas Education Center, which was right down the street from my house, and I registered for Psychology 100, and I didn't stop till I finished. Well, I have to say, that's one of the most inspiring stories, and I want to know, where do you think you got the resilience because some people might have just folded at that point and lived with it and have been silent. I got it from other women, from the women's movement. About that same time was when what they call the second wave of the feminist movement was just beginning to happen. Betty Friedan had just published her book. I actually read it while I was living in Bangkok. For the younger people in the audience, the name of that book was? <laughs> the Feminine Mystique. And it was truly a, a very conservative form of feminism as we look back on it. But she said, women need education. Women need intellectual lives. Women need to be more than just housewives and mothers. She's saying there's more to life than this. And women will not be happy until they recognize and feed their full selves and it happened about the same time as I started seeing this psychiatrist. And it all just came together, and I bought the story, and she was right. And then you just excelled academically from then on. I did. I would have graduated Phi Beta Kappa except for that 1.2, because they never forgive you. But I did graduate with high honors, and I got accepted to graduate school, and I went on from there. Professor Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. And thank you for having me. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. On the next episode in two weeks, I'm going to continue this series on pioneers in the field of sexual harassment. They will share original insights and stories that breaking news coverage overlooks. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.